Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Pop Apocalypse, a podcast brought to you by the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. I'm your host, Matt Dillon, and as I'm recording this, it is spooky season. That means it's time for us to dress up in costumes, eat pounds of candy, and if you have a lawn, you're required by law, I think, to put an elaborate and very big inflatable ghost on it. Hopefully multiple ghosts. And all that stuff is fun. But for some of us, myself included, spooky season means one thing more than any other. And that's, it's time for horror. 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 From Victorian ghost tales to the cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft, classical German expressionist films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, or monster lore like Frankenstein, werewolves, vampires, right on up to contemporary masterpieces like the show Twin Peaks, there's a certain shared love of horror that's an open secret among many of us who end up becoming scholars of the Gnostic and the esoteric. Uh, in that way, it's a little bit like heavy metal, comic books, or role-playing games, whether you play them on a board or on a screen. Uh, if you're right now, you're a teenager and you're a big metalhead and you're listening to this, or if you're a bit older and you have your own teenager who annoys you by listening to heavy metal, don't be all that surprised if they end up growing up and deciding to learn Coptic and end up writing some sort of weird dissertation on magical acts and rituals from the fourth century. Uh, it's it's one of the trajectories of being a teenage metalhead, I can assure you. But why is that? More, more specifically, why does love of these seemingly profane genres like horror lead so many of us to an obsession with the sacred? Well, today's guest, Victoria Nelson, was one of the first and to my mind, still the most eloquent, to answer why an obsession with horror and the monstrous is a way of engaging the supernatural. Uh, more explicitly, and this is one of the theses of her fabulous book, Secret Life of Puppets, published in 2001, the return of the supernatural as it had become repressed with the rise of Enlightenment materialism and the Protestant Reformation, engaging the supernatural on its own terms, had become unthinkable in a certain way. And it pops back up for us in our obsession with ghosts and the monstrous and in the, the cosmic type horror. Secret Life of Puppets is one of the more celebrated books we've had over the last 25 years. Uh, it won a prize for comparative literature studies as sponsored by the MLA and has been touted by contemporary writers of fiction like Neil Gaiman. Uh, I won't go too much more into her actual theses. I want her to be able to expound on that in the interview, so no more spoilers. But suffice to say that The Secret Life of Puppets more or less created the field of esoterica and popular culture, today what those of us in the field call O-culture. And the Secret Life of Puppets, as well as its successor, uh, Gothica, published in 2012, well, you know, they're about 10, 20 years old at this point. They're not just historically important. They display an erudition and a hermeneutic sensitivity that remain a high watermark in the study of a culture. So in this interview, Victoria guides us through her academic life, the twists and turns of her writing career, 
her approach to reading popular culture, the different mentalities behind criticism and fiction writing. Victoria is also a wonderful novelist, as we'll discuss early in the interview, and close by talking about her collaborations with the Spirit Channel, Paul Selig. Without further ado, let's get spooky. And it is our profound honor to have the author Victoria Nelson on Pop Apocalypse today. Uh, Victoria, where are you coming from? Berkeley, California. Berkeley, California. Uh, I'm so jealous. Uh, Berkeley, this time of year with the the fog rolling in overnight, it's it's pure magic. It's a nice place to live, definitely. Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, so I've taken to starting these shows uh, with one sort of uh, pat question, uh, because seeing as this podcast is technically part of Harvard Divinity School, I wanted to ask, what sort of relationship did you have to religion, if any, growing up? I didn't have any direct connection because my parents did not uh, raise my brother and me in um, in any religion. However, both of them came from intensely religious Southern Baptist backgrounds in Arkansas. And I had an uncle on each side who was a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, and so they had rejected that religion uh, once they left home and got married. Uh, but I certainly felt the atmosphere of it and I mean I think unconsciously but um, anyway so that that was kind of the background and I did really resonate when I read Harold Bloom's The American Religion uh, this very prescient book where he links Church of Latter-day Saints Southern Baptists and who are the other ones? Oh boy, I've oh, forgotten. Yeah, uh, there's. He talks about Christian Science in that book. Uh, he has a sort of dismissive account of the New Age, but it, it, nonetheless, he he touches on it. Um, it's been a while since I read it, but I do agree it was such a sort of creative book, right? In the early days of trying to understand the Gnostic influence in America, and he went in a direction that nobody has since, which I really appreciate. And he he also anticipated the the kind of importance of it, mm -hmm. um, growing importance in American culture. But the interesting thing to me was this whole notion of the divine human, mm -hmm. um, and that, of course, was what I found myself um, really investigating in the Secret Life of Puppets. And so I don't know if it was just kind of in my amniotic fluid or <laughs> the atmosphere or what, but uh, I certainly was taking up some of the kind of Gnostic under, I would say hermetic underlying uh, strands of that religion. That makes sense. And it's interesting to hear you comment on that, given uh, evangelical uh, Christianity can just sort of be the other 
for a lot of people who identify as mystical or Gnostic. But one of the things Bloom recognized and has become very obvious to me over the years, there's so much sort of extraordinary spiritual things happening within that that terrain, no matter how you feel about what they think politically. So, you know, it is interesting to hear that's part of your sort of uh, spiritual DNA, as it were. And I, I also have to add, since um, a fair number of my relatives are still very devout um, Christians and Southern Baptists, more or less, um, I really have an appreciation of, through them, of just how demanding it is to ethically live a religious practice every day of your life. Mm. You know, not, not everyone does that <laughs> in or out of religion, but uh, I, I have a deep respect for the underlying precepts and those who faithfully try to follow them. And having lived most of my life in a mainstream intellectual culture that does other religious belief, um, I, I feel I have a, a much more empathy than most people do who are identify with mainstream, you know, uh, materialism. Um, and perhaps that also factored into my, you know, my interest in, in certain esoteric strands that I went on to trace. Yeah. And speaking of which, um, so before we, we get into Secret Life of Puppets and Gothica, both of which won awards, you know, have gotten considerable accolades, uh, some of our listeners may be surprised that you never took the PhD. So what did you end up doing instead of going in and, and doing the, you know, the whole PhD initiation? And how do you think taking that different route made your scholarly voice distinctive? First of all, I just say I regard the secret life of puppets as an alternate universe PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Never would have written and been written or accepted in this climate. Uh, well, what happened to me was I had this weird uh, childhood um, growing up on an old schooner in the Florida Bayou backwaters, and I was homeschooled until about the fourth or fifth grades. And then we moved back to California and uh, the education that I had gotten from this Calvert School correspondence course was so excellent. Uh, and I was already a year ahead. I skipped another grade with the result that I graduated from high school at 15 oh, and wow. graduated from Berkeley when I was 19, going on 20. And um, went to Toronto uh, in uh, medieval studies. That was my chosen field. And the culture shock was so intense from Berkeley in the 60s to what was then, and I'm not dissing Toronto now, I never went back, but a very old fashioned Victorian um, provincial city. Uh, and my fellow graduate students, uh, I, I just couldn't handle it. So I got my MA in one year with a writing a huge thesis and orals and the whole nine yards. 
got out of Toronto, went to Cambridge Bath for a couple of years, hated it there, <laughs> now, I'll just say, as a uh, Californian. Um, and uh, on a whim, I went to visit some Berkeley friends for two weeks in Hawaii. And I loved it so much, I basically stayed for almost 10 years. And in that time, I got to have the adolescence I didn't get when I was a teenager. And even though I was actually teaching at the University of Hawaii as a, a lowly instructor, but uh, basically I was swinging from the vines, being Sheena of the jungle, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me, <laughs> bar none. So eventually I came back to the mainland and I had to kind of front up to being a grown-up again. And uh, I just, I, uh, when I, when my scholarly impulses resurfaced in the 80s, I did think seriously about going back to graduate school because I was just entranced um, with scholarship again, uh, but it had undergone a huge sea change since I'd been in school. And, and critical theory was uh, really sweeping the academic world. And I did really appreciate the rigor, the philosophical training, um, the continental influences that had been really sadly lacking in literary studies before. I never quite mastered it or got into it. So, uh, and the other thing that happened was that I fell in love with Eastern European fantastic writing, the works of the Polish Jewish writer Bruno Schulz and Kafka and others. And since I'd always been very interested in fantastic literature, supernatural literature, um, it, you know, this is like high art. Whereas back home in the US, it was definitely lowbrow, you know, B, B movie stuff. So I got into that and I used my medieval training, such as it was. Uh, and then embarked on this series of essays that later eventually turned into The Secret Life of Puppets. Had I actually gone back to school to get a PhD, I don't think I could have gotten away with anything like what I wrote in The Secret Life of Puppets. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I didn't um, try to do it the regular way. For any prospective graduate students listening to this podcast, I mean, sometimes people do write me and say, well, you know, getting my thesis, I'm not happy here. What should I do? And it's such an individual decision. When you don't go forward to get a PhD, you are going to limit your prospects because in many ways, it's kind of a union card. On the other hand, the, the landscape has changed so utterly that 
even with a PhD, you're going to have a lot of trouble. When I went to school, um, my tuition at Berkeley was $88 a semester. There was no such thing as three part-time jobs. There was no such thing as um, student loans. Uh, but students today, humanity students, uh, just face such a different world. And um, I'm just not sure what the tools are now to navigate it. So I, now I would never presume to give anybody any advice about anything. Yeah, it it is a very individualized decision, um, it, given the job landscape. But one of there's a lot of limitations that come with that, and and certain disappointment. But it also means, in a sense, we're free to just do whatever, <laughs> because there's no sort of checklist, you know, that you can check off in order to land yeah. here or there. It's like, hey, you want to get weird? Go ahead, go get weird. You know, you might as well in, enjoy your training. So, um, yeah, I, I can see going either way. But definitely your work sort of opened up a lot of avenues for us who are, are doing things like these podcasts and such. Um, speaking of, uh, when I was planning and putting the sort of groundwork down to start this show, yours is one of the first names we had on the list uh, because of Secret Life in Gothica. You know, you're the sort of doyen of this field. Um and so we were all set for that. And then Neighbor George came out in December 2021, I believe. And I read it cold. I, I didn't, I decided not to learn anything about it and not knowing when it was written. And I was admiring, oh, look how it brings to life all these ideas that we already saw in your theoretical works. And it was only after I finished that I realized, oh my gosh, she wrote this in the in the 80s, early 90s, like before Secret Life. Um so I, there's a lot of different directions we can go with this, but I want to start with an easy one. What compelled you to write this book, This Neighbor George? And I'm assuming it had something to do with your Eastern European influences, but if you could speak to that more deeply. Well, not in terms of Schultz and so on, not not at all, because it's it, it's much more a, in some ways, a genre novel than anything Schultz or Kafka ever did. Um, coming back from Hawaii, um, I I was determined to become to be a fiction writer, which I had been writing over the years, but had kind of it had gone dormant in Hawaii. But I came back wanting to do that. I was writing stories, and um, I was living out in West Marin County in a little town called Stinson Beach. And um, I decided I wanted to write a kind of mythic story. And that became um, the story I now call Bolinus Venus, which is this second story in the volume that includes uh, Neighbor George. And um, I wanted to write about Stinson Beach and Bolinas are two little towns that are kind of like yin and yang. They're one inhabited by kind of in the old days by macho fellows, rich and 
not so rich, uh, who it's a very masculine culture. And Bolinas was a very feminine, new agey culture. So um, I wrote about this enormous woman who, mute woman who lives in a school bus upon Bolinas Mesa and how she pulls a very uptight, straight Stinson Beach dock broker into her into her uh, force field. And so it was a, a, a Venus story, you know, uh, taking um, possession of someone. And he, this guy was very into just screwing young girls, to put it baldly. And so when this enormous mute basically homeless uh, Bolinas person starts following him around and stalking him. He he just totally freaks out. Anyway, long story short, um, he does fall under her spell, and it was very much a Venus um, conquering all story um, with some echoes of Chaucer, my beloved Chaucer, and his wife of Bath's tale. Wife of Bath, as you might know, is this very adventuresome older woman who's had a lot of men and a lot of husbands and uh, uh, says that what women want most of all is basically to be in charge. <laughs> so anyway, so that that there was that story that I'd written, um, and uh, uh, for whatever reasons, believe me, it wasn't any conscious intention whatsoever. I wanted to write another story set out there in that very distinctive landscape just north of the Golden Gate Bridge in California. And I cast it kind of as a, well, again, this is attributing more consciousness to <laughs> my creative process than I ever had. I just, you know, I've always, even and even writing scholarly books like Secret Life of Puppets, I've just always followed my preference and put one foot in front of the other and not thought about it that much. So anyway, the story came out of a, a young girl who goes out there and uh, to West Marin where tragedy has struck and she's lost both her parents and she's out there um, in a kind of limbo between graduating college and going to graduate school mm -hmm. <laughs> and into this vacuum comes this person. Uh, what I did do deliberately was cast it as a kind of anti-romance novel, you know, a kind of, to use that word, deconstructed romance novel, because uh, the heroine loves reading romances, but she's very ashamed of doing it because she doesn't think it's intellectual enough for her Lacanian studies and so on. Um, but anyway, the actual encounter she has with this man uh, is a kind of a <laughs> a bad vibe version of meeting the mysterious romantic hero. 
and entering into relationships. So that was going on in my mind. What I also wanted to do was to make it non-generic, non-attributable. I didn't want it to be the devil, you know, or anything Christian. I didn't want it to be Native American. I didn't want it to be, you know, Druids or <laughs> anything like that. Um, I, I just wanted this this character who is not actually a man uh, to come from a generic and kind of ecumenical other world that wasn't at all described. And uh, so that I was quite determined that he wasn't going to have any kind of, you know, traditional attributes. And also, you know, I can't even remember how this came about. I decided that all the characters had to have bird qualities. Um, uh, they had to be part bird. And I think I waffled a bit about whether Dovey, the main character, gives them these names when she's writing the account or whether it's just inherent in the story. <laughs> Forgive me, Matt, I revised it enough so that things are a little blurry in my mind about this. But anyway, all the characters have bird last names that they're completely oblivious to. And they all have bird qualities. And uh, birds have traditionally been, uh, you know, messengers from beyond in all kinds of different cultures, from Norse mythology to Egyptian to whatever. Um, and so in Dovey's case, uh, she gets a messenger, a bird from this other state um that isn't Oregon <laughs> even though even though his car license place has Oregon on it um and it's not a nice bird <laughs> and it is something that is forcing her to face truth uh, uh the truth that, that she, at, at some deep level she knows about her childhood and her past um so so that's kind of how it unfolded when i my agent in those days took it around um the folks the high literary folks did not want to touch genre this is like the early 90s mm. and the genre folks thought it was a little too highbrow. <laughs> you know? So it almost took getting into a new century to get the kind of collective sub zeitgeist to the point where it could be both, you know, uh, not just one or the other. Anyway, it completely failed to get a publisher. The other novel I had written that I was quite attached to didn't get a publisher. 
And so I was really stymied. And at the same time, I was back in Berkeley. I was going to all these great lectures on campus. I taught once or twice in the rhetoric department. And I just thought to myself, you know, there's something I'm trying to say. I'm not quite sure what it is. But now that I'm back in this world that I left, um, why not write? write about this in in the terms that I had been trained to write in. So that was how The Secret Life of Puppets evolved very slowly as a series of essays. And when I showed it to my, who the man who would be my wonderful editor at Harvard, Lindsay Waters, he said, well, great, but we don't do essays unless you're really famous. <laughs> so you have to make uh, a real book out of it with chapters. Mm. Okay. So I went back and I just basically made a few cross references and I said, see chapter nine, <laughs> see chapter four. Mm. <laughs> by that means I cobbled together a book out of what was basically uh, a set of essays. So a follow-up there might be, what was your intention and what writers were you specifically modeling when you set about writing Neighbor George? Well, intention is an interesting word when it comes to um, the creative process. And what I think is that the tools that a person brings to critical analysis are not the tools a person brings to making something up on the page um, so that one, I, and I think many of the students I've worked with over the years, um, we don't sit down with a, a checklist of themes, um, writers we're going to emulate, um, overall intentions, uh, nothing like that. The creative process is really purely unconscious. Uh, and what comes out comes from a place that you you don't really have it, that kind of control over. Um, those are the kinds of questions a critic asks when they look at a, you know, a piece of fiction. Now, once you've actually got it down on the page and you start going over it and revising it, then you might be thinking something like, oh, I was kind of copying so-and-so, or, oh, I guess this is really about such-and-such, and as I'm revising, maybe I should be thinking in terms of bringing that out a little bit more. So it's not until you've totally finished what you're doing, including all the revisions, that you have any mm -hmm. notion of what your intention is at all. And, and I think way back in the, in the pre-dawn era of the new criticism, there was even, they had a label called the intentional fallacy. That is, that it was possible for a critic to um, uh, determine what an author's specific intention was. So uh, so anyway, that's 
those are still proper words to use when you're when you're looking at a text and you're not the one writing it um, and making an evaluation. Um, so I leave it to others to fill in intention, influence, themes, et cetera, et cetera. I might have a dim the idea of it uh, by the time I finish, but nothing as clear cut as a critic can bring. Mm. As someone who writes in both modes, you know, who inhabits both territories, I always find there's a kind of a shifting of gears that has to take place when I go from one to the other, and particularly when I go from analytical, critical writing to uh, intuitive, you know, unconsciously powered creative writing, because some I sometimes find my my language carrying over, and I'll be using mm. these big words, and I kind of have to translate it back down to the language of fiction. It's an interesting, interesting uh, phenomenon. Well, I, I have a follow up there. How do you how long does it take to flip back and forth between those gears is it something you can say all right today i'm going to be writing fiction tomorrow i'll do analytical or do you have to sort of stick with a longer range project and focus in on that before shifting over to trying to write a novel let's say i have to really stay in the one i'm doing i can't just flip back and forth from one day to the next mm -hmm. Yeah, that does sound hard. <laughs> it uh, would be a very drastic shift back and forth. So, And I often find in my students, people who come out of an analytical background have, they have to get out of their heads to start writing fiction. And that's at all levels, including the level of language. But it, they can do it. It can be done. It's not impossible. Yeah, and that makes this is just a you know random anecdote, but it's well known that every not every but many PhDs have somewhere a half finished novel, and it usually started coming out when they were trying to write their dissertation, uh, and they're like, oh, I need to put certain energies elsewhere, and it's almost always terrible <laughs> for the exact reasons you point to that we're coming to it analytically and we're already coming in with our idea of themes and everything and you know it just we've kind of pre-digested it before we can let it come out so no I, I think it's actually a very positive impulse because you want to kind of the analytical territory can be kind of sterile and uh, you want to be expressing yourself in a different mode. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a completely valid response. Mm -hmm. What I don't always say to my creative writing students is there, there's an old adage that your first novel is like your, your first pancake. You have to throw it out. Mm. <laughs> and that's true, whatever, whatever, wherever you're coming from. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I just had Whitley Strieber on, and he had to do that with his first seven novels. So sometimes you really have to stick with it uh, before something pops. Um, well, as Fritz Perl said, the organ the organism operates by preference. Mm. So whatever mode you find yourself in, you shouldn't be lashing yourself for not 
thinking you ought to be doing the other one, you know? Mm. It's all good. Yeah, well put. Well put. Oh. So it's interesting to hear hear that backstory um, for Secret Life and for George. Um, but it, as I mentioned in the question, and I just would like to sort of dig down a little bit deeper into it, it simply blew me away reading Neighbor George to see how this sort of theoretical idea was already there in a germinal form, right? Like the explained supernatural, this as a sort of part of the mind. There's an anamnesis in the book that allows her to exercise George. There's this transformation of certain figures into godlike semi-divine beings, primarily with the eagle. Uh, there's this demon or daemon second person within her and then the other world that she spoke to so i know you're you're writing one essay after another at some point while you were writing those essays did you have any sort of eureka moment where you said wait a minute i was already doing this unconsciously and now i'm bringing it into a sort of conscious book or was it a, a little bit more fluid than that well i think um Definitely the language of the birds chapter in Secret Life of Puppets was a direct result of writing Neighbor George and wanting to get into that whole realm a little more deeply. By the way, I knew zilch about birds when I wrote that, <laughs> and it's only recently I've kind of gotten into it. I'm sure real bird fanciers will feel... Um, cheated by my you know lack of detail there um i guess and, and and the other thing i would just say is the uh i wouldn't call them godlike or semi-divine beings at all in neighbor mm -hmm. george the fact that dovey's last name is eagleton is merely a register of her own bird identity. Mm. And when she is fighting George in the climactic scene, uh, and she starts morphing and realizing to her horror that she has the predator instincts of a killer as well, um, that's just um, part of that whole kind of human, uh, otherworldly, mm. uh, shared identity. They're not, she's no God, and neither is George. Um, and in a larger sense, when I wrote Neighbor George, um, I was very into and immersed in and part of the whole tradition of the evil, scary supernatural. Mm. It wasn't until I started doing my studies with the Secret Life of Puppets that I realized just what a narrow cultural construct that was that belongs to Euro american culture that comes directly out of the protestant reformation and the scientific revolution which together uh sort of uh shrank the supernatural into 
the for religious folk, for Protestant folk, the territory of the devil, uh, and for the scientism that grew out of the Protestant Revolution as superstition it doesn't exist at all. Um, and so the whole notion of the demonic supernatural really traces back to that. And uh, as I think I went on to note in Gothica, it's very telling that in uh, all through the 20th century, you know, when you had exorcism or devil possession movies it wasn't some you know i can relate to my own background southern baptist preacher in a leisure suit who got rid of the devil it was it was a full-on card-carrying roman catholic priest with holy water so that it it, it sort of retained this catholic F, F, echo element right down 300 years into the 20th century then what happens uh and we can i'll maybe save that till we talk about gothica is uh, by the end of the 20th century it starts to shift so uh, what i began to realize when i was looking at pop culture and that's when i got this whole notion of the sub zeitgeist you know the slightly less respectable underbelly of mainstream um, intellectual culture, Anglo-American, I would have to say, I'm not trying to really spread it out farther than that, but that uh, this was where, this was the only place the supernatural was able to flourish in, uh, in the 19th into the 20th century with ghost stories and supernatural stories and the whole B-movie realm um, in which the classic conundrum is the main character uh, sees something uh, unnatural, supernatural. And the big question is, is it real or is that character imagining it? Is it real or am I crazy? And the B-movie answer always is, <laughs> you mm -hmm. aren't crazy, it's real. And so this is the only place where people could kind of express, you know, their belief or yearning for a transcendental or other dimension of reality other than just what's here in front of us with our senses and so on um anyway so that was always what i was exploring in the secret life of wonderful. puppets wonderful and uh, so uh, you already spoke to gothica so i think one of the ways to bridge from secret life to gothica would be to talk about um the android the cyborg the sort of mm -hmm. last two chapters mm -hmm. of secret life um, because in that book, you examine the trajectory of the android in the sub-zeitgeist, uh, as well as this idea that the other world becomes more thinkable with the internet and cyberspace and all that sort of speculation. One of the things that uh, it's hard not to bring a sort of Vicki Nelson lens, Victoria Nelson lens, to 
what's happening with AI these days. Uh, it's everywhere. You know, the speculation is in the New York Times regularly. Mm -hmm. uh, the, and, you know, it can be apocalyptic and it can also be, you know, sort of extraordinary. And then the other world, I mean, has been very much built out. You have both these massive online role-playing games where people basically exist in them, uh, World of Warcraft, Second Life, and then the metaverse, which never really popped, but is an attempt to do that. So do you read the this current, current cultural obsession with AI and virtual worlds differently or the same than you did in the late 90s? Well, I would back up just a tiny bit with that to say that in The Secret Life of Puppets, I was exploring this notion of the divine human uh, from antiquity, classical times, uh, the worship of statues, which were literally regarded as drawing down the energy of this other world into the simulacrum and giving the sim simulacrum the powers of that other world, which was a, a definite and fervent belief um, and carried through in Catholicism straight through uh, to the Reformation and beyond. Uh, so I was tracing this, uh, this kind of manifestation of the belief in, in another world right through through uh, puppets, uh, 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 androids, cyborgs, avatars in the late 20th century. And I just would say Secret Life of Puppets ends on a dime <laughs> in the year 1999. Gothica takes up from there. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and you see the same religious impulse in the depiction of uh, the, uh, you know, android cyborgs, etc., and in the whole notion of cyberspace. But it's very, very unconscious mm. because all of the, I, I shouldn't generalize, but it just seems to me that most of the cyber theorists I have looked at don't really have a humanist education. <laughs> they don't know that all of the inflated ideas they have about cyber theory, about, you know, simulacra, about artificial intelligence really are about 2,000 years old, mm. <laughs> at least, um, and are not totally connected to what to the actual artifacts if i can call it that that they're talking about um and i've always seen i mean this is what grew out of writing secret life of puppets that there are two realms of knowledge uh the the episteme and the gnostic and you know, to be very oversimplifying about it. So the one being the materialist, fact-oriented um, um, orientation to view reality, and the other 
being the more transcendental one. Um, and people, to their peril, mix up these two very separate territories. So on one hand, you have evangelical Christians saying that creation began 5,000 years ago. Okay, that's a <laughs> using one territory uh, to explain the other, which does not work. On the other side of that, <clears throat> you get people like someone I quoted in the public book saying, the discovery of outer space has canceled out any uh, uh, legitimacy to the story of Jesus Christ. So again, that's using one territory to explain the other, and it doesn't work. So what I see in cyber theory, and now in this current AI scare, is a lot of what... Uh, I saw, you know, before, which is a mistaking of categories and a projection of transcendentalism onto what is basically a material world situation. So just as how the computer back in, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, suddenly gained these uh, extraordinary powers over his hapless human uh, pilot. Um, I, you know, and, and, and again, I say this without really any deep knowledge, but um, for me, it's always going to be a question of <laughs> someone has to put the plug in the wall, you mm -hmm. know? <laughs> all this doesn't really have agency and what if god forbid the magnetic fields of the earth reversed and we didn't have electricity anymore <laughs> where would ai and all that huge amount of knowledge we have loaded into uh ether what's going to happen to that it'll be gone <laughs> Secret Life, as you say, ends on a dime. And then Gothica basically covers the beginning of the 2000s up until I think it was 2012 when it came out, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. uh, so, And a lot happened. Uh, there is a big transformation there. So what is the sort of transformation and shift that you saw happening in that, that early 2000s? Well, what I saw was this amazing mainstreaming of the supernatural out of the pop culture sub zeitgeist and into uh, you know the more traditional collective uh, in terms of all of these um, fictional works that kind of swept everyone away harry potter but then uh, really primarily twilight the twilight series and what was notable about it too were the number of sort of spiritual and quasi-religious groups that attached themselves to this 
um, uh, to these fictional worlds uh, that had already been happening, of course, in the 20th century with Lovecraft and uh, Star Trek and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, but really became pronounced in the 21st century. And more than that, the brightening of the supernatural, uh, that is, it was no longer the evil devil uh, driven dark world of horror. And even horror movies themselves kind of morphed into uh, uh, a sort of a brighter landscape so that the uh, the bad supernatural characters were no longer so bad. They started getting a lot of, um, started to say shading, but that has a different meaning now. I mean, it, it mean no, more nuanced. Mm. So Neighbor George, for instance, is very much a product of the evil supernatural of the 20th century. But what you see in Twilight that's so interesting is that the vampire, which is this traditionally, I mean, nothing good about that vampire, right? <laughs> and now here are these beautiful people, uh, they're even vegetarian vampires. Uh, they, unlike Dracula, whom Bram Stoker gave the attribute of uh, dissolving in sunlight, you know, presumably his evil couldn't stand the light of day. So what happens to Stephanie Meyer's vampires is that they shine, they glow, they have this huge halo. And it doesn't take a genius to say this is the diamond or rainbow body of the Tibetan Buddhists. It's also the radiant uh, body of the ancient Gnostics, you know, the invisible uh, sheath around the human body uh, that both these uh, practices believed in. Um, and and they're good. And as the series progresses, um, and uh, the main character uh, becomes transitions into becoming a vampire herself, she basically does become a demigoddess, and she's immortal. And they're all immortal. Um, so. This is a very different territory uh, than uh, 20th century vampirism. I mean, there's still evil vampires around, but this is mm. this is really a kind of step forward. And then you have all these other vampire series of relatable vampires. The uh, the villain, in a word, the villain becomes the hero. Mm. Uh, that's the big trajectory. The, the object becomes the subject. That really started with Anne Rice when Interview with a Vampire, when for the very first time ever, the vampire was a first-person narrator. 
So you're automatically in the realm of the subject whom you identify with and not, you know, the other. So all of this is going on and and the supernaturalism kind of floods into um, more literary realms and more serious art film forms. Um, and I just would say also with and as well as, you know, spiritual practice. Um, and this is the phenomenon of individual works of fiction being taken up as scripture. Mm -hmm. I did talk about it a little bit in the puppet book um, because I guess what I was trying to identify is this tremendous yearning for the for the transcendental. And people who aren't brought up in traditional religion look for it without maybe even knowing they're looking for it. And so what are they reading that has anything transcendental about it? Well, it's fantasy and 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 horror stories and so on. And so that I think is how the Lovecraft uh, practices began. Um, and then this went on with Twilight. And again, Twilight has kind of peaked and receded. So I don't know what's going on now. But at its peak, uh, people were actually practicing bibliomancy with, mm -hmm. with Twilight. You know, like out of the four volumes every morning, you'd open up one of the four volumes and read what was there and take it as your practice. They also uh, would take whatever uh, member of that vampire family you felt most akin to would be your kind of talismanic god, just like Greek and Roman gods in you know earlier times in Western culture. Um, and The interesting thing there is, as I mentioned in Gothica, Stephanie Meyer uh, is a practicing Mormon. And if you examine the theology of the Church of Latter-day Saints, you see a lot of the same things. Uh, it, it's very Swedenborgian. A lot of it, I think, comes from Swedenborg, but it's also in the realm of what Bloom was talking about as, as the American uh, religion, and, and there there is a belief among the practitioners of the Church of Latter-day Saints that uh, he, uh, humans can achieve a demigod status in the afterlife. And the, the Twilight Vampires are basically living their afterlife on Earth, that, which is, again, a, a, that ancient, ancient, divine human tradition. So um, I would say, though, that I'm not, since writing these books, I have not been following um, these trends as closely as I used to. Uh, what I really got wrong in Gothic <laughs> was uh, predicting in 2010, 2012, that uh, the superhero movies were, you know, on the way out 
Little did I know what happened. My theory back then had been that a lot of the sort of incredible body armor and so on was reflecting the Iraq and Afghan wars, which, Mm. you know, were still very much going on and in the public consciousness. I have a hard time figuring out why they have stayed so popular. I I have to say I don't like them. That's probably why I wanted to predict mm. for go away. <laughs> I haven't seen enough of them to, you know, to pull out what the common themes are, but I suppose the most obvious is having superhuman ha- uh, supernatural powers. However, they're attributed, you know, to lightning or, you know, this or that or the other. Um, And that that, in some ways, uh, has been what people wanted to see. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Uh, Matt? Well, I'm on board with you with the, what was happening in the 2000s, the to my mind, still the greatest superhero movie is The Dark Knight. And that was an Iraq War statement, right? With the um, the Patriot Act, right? He has to code into everybody's phones in order to find the Joker and everything like that. Um, and that one you know, was, was about as good as it gets. I, like you, have never really tapped into the MCU or the, the master, pardon me, Marvel Comic Universe and all those films. They are solid. But one of the things that struck me hearing you speak to them, uh, you know, when you think about Twilight and vampires, when you think about Jediism as it relates to Star Wars, uh, there's no, as far as I'm aware, sort of re- hyper-real religion of the MCU, right? People aren't sort of going right. there. There's no sort of sacred interaction with the characters of the MCU in that way. So... Part of it is just, it was a very well put together uh, series of films that, you know, you feel like you're missing out if you're not part of all the the sort of 30 film sequence. Um, but it doesn't seem to have, yeah, it just doesn't have the sort of gravity that some of the earlier films do, in, in my opinion. Um, what's it going to say? And it, this is another question that I would have put forth, but it sort of ties in here. Um, well, it's interesting to see the ways in which people, you know, sort of read the Twilight books or they read Tolkien in a way that sort of references them as sacred texts. More and more, you just see this sort of bricolage, right, where it's less that they're dealt with as uh, sacred in and of themselves. They're sacred products of the imagination. Right. And so however the imagination comes out, whether that's in the the beings of Lovecraft, whether it's, you know, the Jedi, uh, whether it's Tolkien or whether it's, you know, Christian saints, right? The ways in which people interact with them are as figures of the imagination. It's sort of a chaos magic type approach to these materials. Um yeah, which yeah, was, good point. Uh, um, which I like. But I should ask you. So having charted that 10 years ago. Obviously, it's a fool's errand to try and figure out which way religion is going, right? Um, you know, but 
having seen this sort of brightening 10 years ago, do you see it going a different direction, uh, this merging or or confluence of the holy and popular culture uh, heading in some different direction by 2030? I can't, you know, I, I'm not able to make that call. I, I really don't know. When I was writing Gothica, I was pretty convinced that the 21st century, and I still am, the 21st century was going to see a resurgence of religion and spirituality for good or ill. Mm -hmm. And we certainly have seen that both in evangelicalism in radical other radical religious movements uh, that have not been uh, particularly positive um, and we have also uh, seen it in in you know as kind of a greater a move from quote religion unquote to spirituality quote unquote that spirituality is now the preferred term. Even with some of my devout uh, Baptist relatives, you know, they see it as being less hierarchical and less orthodox. Um, so I was feeling back then that it, there would be some sort of new religion waiting to sweep uh, America, at least, um, just as uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints in, you know, the 19th century Scientology, which is now rated a, an official religion, <laughs> in case you didn't know that, uh, uh, you know, it's one of the outer space religions that rose up in the uh, mid to late 20th century. So I so I, I'm not seeing it happen as kind of as fast as I thought it would, but I do think the 21st century will see a more encompassing religion that probably grows out of both fictional territory on one hand, and this very strong uh, new thought um, uh, uh, well Swedenborgian for want of a better word uh, uh, religious uh, impulse that's been around for thousands of years uh, the notion of the divine human uh, that a human can achieve that it's within the human being's ability to achieve godhead if not in this life then in the next life um and uh if any one of your listeners wants to look more into the development of this uh <clears throat> strain of christianity but also other other uh relig other religions um you should take a look at Mitch's, Mitch Horowitz's uh, book on new thought. Mm -hmm. the, the principle is, and interestingly, Dan Brown made it the great subject of his novel, The Lost Symbol, mm -hmm. which wasn't nearly as popular as his earlier 
um, uh, you know, Da Vinci Code and other books. But but the whole premise of that was this whole thing of new thought, which boiled down to its simplest terms, and his words was mind over matter. The idea that thoughts, our, our inner thoughts, are what uh, shape and create outer reality. Um, not the other way around. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, the new thought, that's that's an incredibly important part of the trajectory there. Uh, even William James, early 20th century, yeah. pinpointed new thought as this is going to be uh, a part of the next great religion, if not the great religion in and of itself. And it's also one of those ones that humanizes the the sacred so that, you know, people can practice it no matter what their sort of flavor happens to be. Um, and I think you also see that a little bit, or I hadn't thought about this before, so I could just be off on a, on a tangent, but the use of psychedelics in microdosing, right? Uh, this way of, oh, I don't want to have this sort of transformative, you know, like otherworldly experience. I want to take just enough so that I'm functioning at my highest pulse possible aptitude you know and sort of uh enchant the everyday just enough right mm. um so yeah I hadn't, I hadn't put that together before that's interesting well um, that's that is interesting matt because um there has been this kind of uh, muting down i would say in the last 10 years of some of the trends that seem to be almost exploding before mm -hmm. and microdosing <laughs> totally <laughs> embodies that you know not enough to lose your day job or yeah. you know, <laughs> when you're trying to pay back your student loan and all i mean it's 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 a there are many many cultural and class issues involved yeah. and i would also say uh, just to keep going with that, that the uh, there are many interesting strands also, for instance, in African-American religiosity and uh, lesser known uh, practices such as the one that Louis Farrakhan started and uh, that my friend Marcus Redd has investigated that very much it's it's part ufo religion part new thought um all these strands are working together i also see out here in uh california the two californias alta and baja uh, my great-grandfather was actually a mexican californio who was born here before the california became a state um but at any rate, what I hear, have heard for years in Baja is that people have been um, um, leaving the Catholic Church in droves for evangelical religions. Um, and so there's just this feeling in the air that, um, you know, they want to change. They want something different. And... Um, oh, I'm blanking out. What's the name of the denomination? Um, they don't break coffee or the ones who believe the end of the world is coming. 
<laughs> I, I mean, there's that. a lot. Uh, there's a lot of people who think the end of the world is coming. So that's uh, Seventh Day Advent. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Seventh Day Seventh Day Adventists are very big in Baja. Interesting. I did not know that. Perhaps this is a good time then to segue into uh, one of your other terrains. So, in addition to being a scholar and a writer or a fiction writer, you also worked closely with one of today's most widely read channels, uh, Paul Selig. And given all the ways that you've written about how the supernatural comes out in certain forms based on our cultural imaginaire, I'm very curious uh, how you interpret what Paul is doing. So, uh, yeah, please do. Well, Paul Selig was my program director in the graduate creative writing program at Goddard College when I first uh, started there back in 2006. And at that time, he was a playwright, a, a department head. He also taught at NYU. And he had a sideline of uh, sort of psychic mediumship. And um, I, up to that point, you know, I was very much a non believer in. Um, you know, psychic readings and all of that sort of thing. Um, but after so much contact with Paul in our residencies and so on, um, I just empirically began to subscribe to the notion that, in fact, we all exist in this uh, in this energy, this single energetic force that uh you know encompasses the planet and that some people um uh, that we all have a, you know kind of an innate ability to tap into that but <clears throat> some people develop it um and and other people don't um and i also learned that the abilities vary enormously the world of psychics is kind of like the world of herbal supplements. <laughs> you don't have any <laughs> quality control, uh, you know, and some people are a heck of a lot better at it than others. Uh, Paul was pretty amazing. And a while uh, in the first, those first years, 2006, 2009, um, he had a group that met in Manhattan uh, at his apartment, uh, sort of a heal psychic healing group. And he started channeling a spiritual teaching uh, and the uh, forces that named themselves in the channeling called themselves the guides. And it was a very coherent teaching. And he started recording it and getting transcriptions um, and uh, while this was going on, he uh, uh, expressed a desire to write a memoir about some of his experiences, but he was having a lot of trouble. He had a lot of writer's block about getting going with it. So I, as the author of a book on writer's block, uh, said, well, let's let's talk about it. Maybe uh, let's set up a time and maybe if you just start telling me your story that will 
kind of get the thing going. So, so we call, he called from New York to my house here in Berkeley. And um, so we were just going to talk about this memoir. And the guide voice interrupted and said, Paul is not going to write a memoir. <laughs> he, he is going to write a 300-page book on a spiritual practice that will be 12 chapters long. He will, he will channel and record it, and Victoria will be the witness, the listener, and this will take two weeks every day for one hour. So... <laughs> So, so that's what we did. It took two and a half weeks. And uh, I was going to go down to Esalen to one of the uh, private seminars that Jeff Kripal and Michael Murphy were running there. And I told uh, Jeff about Paul. I said, you've really got to have him down there. He's, he's really something. And I told Paul get the whole book transcribed, get a hard copy, and bring it with you to Esalen. So that is what happened. And as it turns out, Michael Murphy's publisher at that time was Mitch Horowitz at Tarcher. And Paul gave the book to uh, Mitch. Mitch read it on the plane home and said, this is exactly what I'm looking for and publish it but and and i said to paul you wretch you know the rest of us <laughs> work years and years not just to write the damn books but to get them published mm. <laughs> you've got the, two and a half weeks of composition and, and a week of editorial Anyway, the, so the rest is history. He's now done about 10 books in the series. Eventually, he left Goddard and is now a full-time psychic and channeler. And, um, you know, I almost at one point, I was going to write an essay about the trope of psychics in pop culture mm -hmm. because it's very similar to the is it real or am I crazy thing, uh, starting with... Um, Oh, what's the one with Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost. Ghost? The psychic is always a fraud in the story, but then lo and behold, what they deliver turns out to be the actual truth. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 a complete and total trope. It went on to that there was a series I think called. Uh, it wasn't medium it was, it was something else anyway so that's that's the fictional version um but in the in the real life version paul has a a good following now he is a complete anti-guru mm. uh there is absolutely no uh authoritarianism authoritarianism orthodoxy whatever uh in the teaching he presents himself as a fellow student, not as the, as the, you know, master or leader. And it's a very eclectic, egalitarian teaching that draws very much from new thought, uh, in the sense, in the, the sort of uh, adjuring you to, to create your reality through your thoughts. 
and not to be uh, bound <clears throat> by your history. There are elements of uh, Buddhism um, in it, um, and I'm sure there are probably elements of other religions. I have no idea where it comes from, except that to witness him doing it is to be in awe of whatever force it is that's engendering this because the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, the chapters are completely coherent and they just pour out of him. Um, it very much, I think, falls in the path of A Course in Miracles, mm. which as you probably know is a very uh, popular New Age um, spiritual practice that was actually channeled by a an atheist Jewish woman who who said about you know this all came out of her and she said um, um, I don't believe it but I know it's true mm. words to yeah. that effect yeah. so so yeah so that's an example of of sort of the smaller spiritual practices that go on these days um, um it doesn't really fit the mold of the fictional scripture i was talking about but um certainly has its proponents absolutely yeah and and you know you spoke to helen shookman and of course in miracles um jane roberts also and the seth materials there are a lot of there's a lot of not so great <laughs> psychic channeled books but then there are some like paul's and like a course in miracles and like seth speaks that are coherent they're profound and there's something worth investigating there and, and really taking seriously so it's nice that uh to have a, a living exemplar of that around um and so to come in for a landing here uh, with our wide-ranging talk. What are you working on now? Uh, what are you up to? What can people look forward to from Victoria Nelson over the next few years? Well, um, I've always been a slow study in terms of writing these books and getting them out. <clears throat> I am working on a draft of the novel that I mentioned to you, um, which um, I got the inspiration from uh, from a colleague of yours at Rice, Claire Fanger, the medievalist. Oh. She said, hey, when I was working on Gothica, she said, hey, have you ever heard of Christina the Astonishing, the 12th century Belgian saint? And I said, no. And she said, well, Christina died and uh, went to purgatory and came back with superhero powers. She could fly, she could walk underwater, she could nourish herself from her own breasts, and she had an indestructible mortal body. You could do anything to it, and she wouldn't die. So I thought, well, um, even though I don't like superheroes, this is kind of an interesting situation. And so I did imagine this future alternative northern california world of pioneers where they don't they can't remember the civilization before they've kind of had to reinvent themselves and they've reinvented 
um, a new religion, um, and my Christina decides to die and, and go to <clears throat> what she calls the world of light and love. And I will admit that I've borrowed a bit from Paul's um, spiritual world when I constructed this religion in this uh, transcendental realm. Um, and uh, she comes back with these powers, uh, but they totally freak everybody out. The original Christina was going to, um, 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 it was supposed to be proving the existence of purgatory. That was her whole mission back, back on Earth. And this Christina is casting around like crazy for what, why, why was she sent back? What's she supposed to do? And in the meantime, people just regard her as a total freak. Uh, and at one point, she ends up at a in a, a place uh, that is dimly remembered as the Fillmore Auditorium in the old San Francisco. And she discovers she's been put on stage uh, as a freak show for these sadomasochistic um, goss who want to see her saw her arm off and. <laughs> do all these things and then another point she's they try to execute her uh, up north in the sort of new version of Mendocino County uh, in a battery uh, operated electric chair um, so so there's a certain amount of gore and violence but also um, and I'm not sure where that came from in my psyche but at any rate <laughs> she um, she perseveres. She finally finds solace at the top of a 300-foot redwood tree. Uh, that's kind of becomes her sanctuary, and um, her adventures continue. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm working on a screenplay of Neighbor George for a London production company, um, and. I also have on the back burner a draft of a book I wrote about the psychology of binge reading, uh, of compulsive reading, with regards to genre in particular. Um, I went into this a little bit in um, The Secret Life of Puppets. Uh, why do we read horror? Why do we read romance? Why do we read fantasy and sci-fi so compulsively? Mm -hmm. You know, and compulsive reading is kind of a different experience uh, in in many ways. And so I've been engaged in trying to work out the psychology of that in each instance. Um, I've always believed in regards to myself and others, that anyone who compulsively uh, 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 consumes uh, horror um, after their teenage years probably has a little bit of childhood PTSD going for them. Mm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, you know, romance and so on and so on. So, um, so I'm having fun with that. I'm looking with, at some a cohort of thriller writers in particular. So I just uh, bat around between my projects and mm. just keep putting one foot in front of the other without knowing at all where I'm going. 
Well, that's uh, that's an exciting set of burners to be working on. Uh, I <laughs> like to see where that is headed. Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, that's that's as good a place to stop as we can find. So, uh, Victoria Nelson, thank you so much for coming on Pop Apocalypse today. Um, and Godspeed with all your projects. Wow, thank you, Matt. It was really fun to talk with you. Likewise. All right, take care.